Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Virginia's newly elected Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, is making national headlines with a flurry of executive orders. The most recent, an email tip line created for parents to report if they see something divisive being taught in public schools. This latest move is being hailed by his campaign supporters as delivering on a promise to curtail what he calls critical race theory. However, critical race theory is not being taught in Virginia public schools, but rather critics say the tip line is intended to intimidate teachers from exploring the racial history and concepts that may make some students uncomfortable. There are so many unanswered questions about the tip line, from who decides what is divisive to the consequences. But Virginia's not alone. In East Tennessee, not far from the Virginia border, McMinn's school district officials voted to ban a graphic novel, but it's not just any graphic novel. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning story about the Holocaust. Defending their decision, the school district cited objectionable content. Now, they're making international news on Holocaust Remembrance Day, a global moment encouraging all of us to engage with the uncomfortable history about one of the darkest chapters in the 20th century. While Yunkin's executive order and the McMinn School District's decision to ban this graphic novel are not on their face related, they beg a bigger question. How can we engage with historical events and religious history in a way that deepens understanding, even across difficult divides. This week on Inspired, we explore that question. For historian Benjamin Park, this has never been a more exciting time. I love that challenge of being able to convince the students that there is an intellectual and political and cultural history that led to this point and that we can actually make sense of where we are today by looking at you know, where we were in the past. Park is an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. He came to our attention because a listener shared an essay that Park contributed to a new collaborative digital resource, Uncivil Religion. It's a project between the University of Alabama Department of Religion and the Smithsonian Institute. Later in the episode, we'll learn more about the initiative. First, my conversation with a history professor who explains how his faith actually inspired his scholarship. I was raised in the LDS faith, so that was my entry point to religious history, and then religious history was my entry point to the American Revolution. I believe only understanding all of those things in harmony can we understand a particular uh, vantage point of, of American culture. How, as a history professor, do you approach the topic of the American Revolution today, given all that's happening in our political world and in our civic discourse? Well. 
the good news is I don't have to spend a lot of time convincing my students that the history matters and that the American Revolution actually means something for us today because all they have to do is turn on their TVs or open up the social media and they'll see pictures and images of people saying the founders would be are betrayed or that the revolution is over or the revolution has begun. And so I think everyone recognizes that they are in in many ways, both an unprecedented time that what's happening now is new and hasn't been done before, but also a time that really is is deeply connected to the past. And to actually prove the credibility and validity of their movement now, they have to connect it to, you know, what the founders did or what the revolutionaries did. How do you navigate teaching uh, across the fault lines? It's very difficult, especially in a time to where we're being told what we can and cannot teach from a state and national level and and from a public level. And now that parents of students are all the more wanting to be involved on what their children are being taught. Um, I address it head on. I tell my students on the first day that in case you all haven't noticed, these things are difficult and these things raise lots of tensions. And so what we're going to do in this class is we are going to address these topics. First, I'm going to equip you with the information so that unlike a majority of the people who are blowing hot air uh, into this discourse, you're actually going to be equipped to address these topics. And then we're going to address them and we're going to talk about why it's hard to talk about our past, why, you know, the transfer of power is so important, why debates over whether this is a Christian nation is hardly a new topic. I don't know if it's because I'm naive or just stupid, but I feel that if we can get the topics on the board and discuss it, that we are all the better as a result. You know, when we just passed this anniversary of January 6th, a moment that even the debate of what you call it Right. Causes controversy for some. It is an insurrection, the deadliest attack that has happened in the United States Capitol uh, in an attempt to interrupt the transfer of power, as you just described to others. They see uh, the signs of empowered people seeking to hold accountable those in power. When you look at it and you look at how folks uh, have been talking about where we are just a few weeks now past that anniversary. What sticks out to you? Well, I think there's both good news and bad news that that immediately comes to mind when you ask that poignant question. On the one hand, the good news is I think history can show us that none of this is new and that perhaps the details and the actual animosity, it may be to a new degree and we're facing new challenges. That, that's all new and I'll grant that. But In my class on the American Revolution that I just taught a few minutes ago, we talked about how the American Revolution itself, the terms that were used were politicized in the 1770s. Was it a revolution or was it a civil war or was it an insurrection? We read one historian who said, what if we looked at the patriots not as patriots or revolutionaries, but as insurrectionists? Does that change the way we view the crisis that took place in 1775 to 1776? So I think one of the things that historians can do when looking at the January 6th moment is we can help people understand that the terms we use to define these are packaged with layers of meaning. 
And it is our job to dissect those and show what they mean. And I think that's an important part of the conversation itself. That's the good news that we can provide some context for these events and the uh, anniversaries of them. The bad news is when I look at the debate over how we think about the January 6th insurrection is that we're not just not using the same language, we're often not using the same facts anymore. And as a historian, your first rule is to gather the facts and the evidence together so that you can make your argument. But when we look at the public discourse, we're seeing separate spheres of facts, dare I say alternative facts, uh, to construct these different narratives. And when we have these bifurcated spheres of knowledge that makes this discussion, this, this public dissection, which is crucial to democracy, all the more difficult. You use the term alternate facts, which always gives me pause, because if something's a fact, how can there be an alternate fact? Right. Right, which which goes into this term of what are we defining as truth, and we're not holding similar truths in common. The the phrase, as as I'm sure many people listening are aware, that was a phrase that Kellyanne Conway, one of uh, Trump's spokespersons, uh, used a number of of years ago. And of course, as you know, there is no such thing as an alternate facts. There are facts. We can dispute the meanings of them. Perhaps we can dispute the foundations of its historical uh, you know moments and so forth. But there should be a sense that we can come to a you know a shared knowledge of the of the bare facts and when you're creating alternative sense of alternative facts that typically means you're constructing alternative forms of authority of who gets to define what is a truth and when you have these competing spheres of authority defining what is truth that makes discussion all the more impossible how do you create a space to turn an event like January 6th into a teachable moment? I think there are two tools that I bring to the table when I discuss things like January 6th in my classroom. And I did this when I teach incoming freshmen last semester, American history. We brought up the issue of of January 6th within the longer uh, pedigree of political history. And the first thing I need to emphasize is that there's no one meaning that comes out of these events. Even those who stormed the Capitol that day, they came for different reasons, for different purposes, and they took different lessons from it. So I want my students to understand the variety of experiences and the variety of interpretations. But you can't leave it there because that would just fall into interpretive anarchy that everyone has different truths. Then you have to take the next step and contextualize those meanings, contextualize why did some people feel that the government had gotten to such a point that storming the Capitol and halting the counting process of the Electoral College, why was that their only recourse uh, to justice? And then we need to place that in context. The, the historian context is always the most important thing because that's what's going to understand the broader meaning. And, I, and for me, helping students understand, A, the diversity of these experiences, but B, the context of what led them to do those things, that's when you typically, if you ever see the aha move moments of the students, they're like, oh, this understands because A, it's okay to be sympathetic 
or in some cases, empathetic to those who are doing these events, as long as you're able to understand what led them to do it, then makes you understand their reasoning. And then you can actually have a discussion. So placing something like a January 6th on a dissection table to where you say, we are discussing this as a historical moment, which is difficult, of course, because people are still reading an act of meaning into it. But we are going to dissect it, tear out the individual pieces and understand what the various motivations and then place them within their broader context, that's where students actually get a a sense of, okay, that's how I understand what actually took place. You know, as you describe that dissection process, so much is dependent on actually understanding the context. And I have to tell you, you came to my attention because a listener of our program uh, sent me an email Uh, linking an article that you wrote for a project that sought to provide some clarity, some context on the religious symbolism and the religious um, meaning that some sought to tap into on that day. And it was on the misidentification, I think, by a national news network of an individual who was at the Capitol on January 6th, dressed in what was described as a Roman centurion. You saw that. Tell me when that came across your screen and why you decided to, as you say, offer some context and set the record straight. Yeah, I was like many Americans, uh, you know, following the news feverishly from my office desk, looking at all the updates and all the the pictures and videos coming out. And I remember having my stomach drop when I saw this figure dressed in, you know, a Roman centurion uh, costume, which I'm pretty sure that's probably what it was when he bought it, but he was not using it to be a Roman soldier. He was using it to portray a Mormon prophet, a figure out of the Book of Mormon. I knew this instinctively as soon as I saw it, because along with his costume, he was holding up this banner that I immediately recognized as the, the title of Liberty, which is a story from the Book of Mormon. In a book of Alma in the Book of Mormon, a freedom fighter named Petra Moroni fought for his freedom in around, I, I like to say 76 BC, because 76 is so popular. But before Christ came to Jerusalem, in this land, Book of Mormon is about this land, right? And the same fight for freedom, this land, the same land right here upon which we stand, Petra Moroni ripped his coat and he wrote this message right here. In memory of our God, and our religion, and our freedom, and our peace, our wives and our children. And it was called the title of liberty, and he held it up high when he fought against the kingmen. And they slayed the kingmen, and I'm here to represent that. Basically, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they have the scriptural text that is uh, proclaimed to be an ancient record of God's chosen people living in the Americas, and that these God's chosen people who were Christians, uh, there were warring factions between one group and another, the believing group and the non-believing group. And the believing group at one point was led by this righteous leader named Captain Moroni, or at least he led their military forces. And he led them against this, this wicked army. Um, and 
by leading them, he led them not just, you know, to a physical victory, but to moral victory, that he was fighting on behalf of the wives and children and their liberty. And he rent his coat and wrote out his title of liberty, and they marched behind this banner. And so I saw this figure on TV, and I'm like, oh, no, that's a Mormon uh, figure uh, joining in the insurrection. And it reaffirmed to me a few things that I wrote about in the essay that you kindly mentioned, uh, this idea of Mormons becoming much more libertarian, much more conservative, and, and feeling comfortable in drawing from their Mormon scripture and doing so, which is why I wrote this essay placing this Captain Moroni figure within this broader context of what would lead a Mormon man like this individual to dress up as Captain Moroni to defend, you know, Donald Trump's uh, election tally on January 6, 2021. Tell us a little bit more about who he was and why he would be someone that one would want to emulate at a protest. In the Mormon world, especially in Mormon scripture, there is a fine line between religious and secular leaders. Uh, and by fine, I mean almost indiscernible. Uh, so those who are righteous leaders could be leading both the government and religious communities. So there, there's not so much a separation of church and state. So what Captain Moroni represented is someone who is willing to stand up for God's law. Also probably an outsider, someone uh, who is yes, maybe connected to the establishment through the media, but willing to do the right thing to defy whatever the general regulations are, which is what Captain Ronai does, because at some point he even turns on his own leader that he feels isn't, you know, supporting his righteous cause. And so Captain Moroni in LDS circles represents someone who's willing to uh, go to extremes to defend righteousness, mm-hmm. um, which... This wasn't the first time that Captain Moroni popped up in political discourse over the last year. Uh, Just a few months previous in some of the campaign events leading to the 2020 election, Mike Lee, who is a senator from Utah, speaking to a predominantly Mormon audience in Arizona, said Donald Trump is our Captain Moroni because he is willing to stand up for our rights. So when they're drawing on him, in fact, at one point, this figure who dresses up at Captain Moroni, he explains Captain Moroni to a journalist saying he's basically the Mormon William Wallace, uh, which, you know, depicting the the Scottish nationalist and the great Braveheart figure in Mel Gibson garb, uh, someone who is willing to stand up and shout freedom. And that's basically what Captain Moroni represents. From a historical perspective, was he an actual person? He is a figure only found in the scriptural texts of Book of Mormon. So Mormons who believe that the Book of Mormon is a historic record of the ancient peoples, they would say, of course, he's a a historic figure. Those who don't believe in the Book of Mormon, they say, well, he's kind of a a literary figure who who stands up. So this would be one of those to where if you are a believing Latter-day Saint, he is a historical figure who actually existed. And those who are like, well, outside the faith would think, well, he's about as real as Huckleberry Finn. Mm. After the break, we continue my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Park, author of Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. He's also the editor of A Companion to American Religious History. After the break, Park offers some historical and political context 
as to how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints evolved from pariahs and outsiders to power brokers inside the GOP, and how those political loyalties is starting to challenge the church hierarchy in unexpected ways. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, I'm talking with historian Benjamin Parks. His areas of interest, revolutionary politics and Mormon studies in America. Before the break, he was explaining that a Mormon scriptural figure, Captain Maroney, has become a symbol for Mormons who support Donald Trump. As evidence Park points not only to the protesters who showed up at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th dressed as Captain Maroney, but to a campaign rally in which Arizona Senator Mike Lee was using Maroney as a way to rally his fellow faithful to support the re-election of then-President Donald Trump. It's a stark contrast when you take a step back and look at Mormon history. Once outsiders, now key allies and power brokers. As we get back to the conversation, I pose this question. What is the symbolism and significance of invoking a Mormon figure at a campaign rally? As, as any good historian does, I have three answers to it, going from the long term to the shorter term. Um, long term on the Mormon acceptance and Mormon culture, I think it's important to note that Mormon politicians 50 years ago speaking in Arizona probably would have been terrified to bring up the Book of Mormon and defending a politician because to gain 
American acceptance and assimilation, Mormons did all they could to downplay their distinctive features. And they tried to emphasize our commonality with other Americans. And so if, if and, uh, and with other Mormons, Christians, right? Absolutely. With other Christians, the Book of Mormon was like, that's the third rail. That's what's proving that we're different. We don't want to emphasize that. So if a Mormon senator were to go down to Arizona to, to uh, stump for a presidential candidate, they would have drawn from the Bible. They would have used biblical characters, not Book of Mormon characters. So the fact that Mike Lee felt comfortable using Captain Moroni in likening to uh, uh, Donald Trump, I think that showed uh, a comfort level of Mormons feeling that we are in the mainstream now. We don't have to feel about our dis- we don't have to feel awkward about our distinctive nature. I think that's a shift over the last fifty years. The medium term context is the fact that the Mormons would compare Captain Moroni to Donald Trump is crucial because, you know, up to a couple of decades ago, like many in the religious right, they wanted political leaders who matched their moral ethics and their religious ideals. We don't want someone who's just going to look after our interests. We want someone who matches our values. I don't think you can find someone who is more asymmetrical to Mormon and religious right values than Donald Trump. And yet both Mormons and white evangelicals back Donald Trump at high numbers. And so I think that shows a major transition over the last few decades of this religious right identifying themselves and finding commonality more on political issues rather than moral issues. So I think that's the mid-range context. And then the short-term context, the fact that Mike Lee felt it was necessary to go talk to Mormons in Arizona to back Donald Trump, I think showed this fear that Mormons weren't going to back Donald Trump and that they needed to reaffirm that support uh, for the American right and the Republican Party. So I think there's multiple contexts to explain why Mike Lee's comments comparing to Donald Trump to Captain Moroni were quite significant in the broader story of Mormonism and American politics. When you describe the relationship between uh, the leadership and the hierarchy of the church and political figures. What do you see as some of the areas to pay close attention to, to better understand how this political um, influence may be used? Yeah, I think there's a big tension at the heart of the LDS church right now that is probably reflective of the broader tension of American religion writ large, especially in the American Christian context, to where for decades, there have been Mormon leaders, just like there have been white evangelical leaders, who have been doing a lot to align their religious tradition with the American political right, pushing skepticism toward the liberal establishment, denouncing secular truths, trying to reaffirm the authority of of biblical, fundamental, conservative Uh, doctrines to the point now that Mormonism is often synonymous with this conservative culture to the point to where even church leaders might not be able to, you know, control as much as we have in the past. I think the best example of this is how LDS culture has handled the pandemic. Um, Mormonism, for at least a half century now, has been very pro-vaccine. Church leaders have been pro-vaccine on, on uh, unlike, you know, uh, Seventh-day uh, Adventists or a number of other religious denominations that Mormonism might align with on other issues, Mormon leaders have been pro-vaccine. And so when uh, 
the pandemic hit, uh, church leaders from the very beginning were like, we are praying for a vaccine. We're looking forward to a vaccine. And when the vaccines came out, LDS leaders were the first ones to in Utah to go out and actually get the vaccine and encourage Mormons to do likewise. And yet large numbers of Mormons didn't because after decades of cultivating this relationship with a conservative political culture, now many more American Mormons are taking their cues from Sean Hannity more than they are LDS leaders. I imagine lots of evangelical communities, white evangelical communities at least, are doing the same. At the same time, there's a number of, you know, younger generation of Mormons who are aghast at this, especially those who lean more liberal, more progressive, and general study and show and studies generally show that younger Mormons tend to be uh, liberal who are looking at this Mormon culture that is becoming synonymous with conservative culture and wondering, do I have a place? Do I want to remain in this tradition? If they decide to remain in the tradition and try to help reform it, that would be one thing. But if history teaches us anything, as long as LDS leaders are not providing a space for those more liberal-minded members, they're likely to leave and leave Mormonism to continue on its more rightward trajectory. And I think that's a crisis at the heart of the LDS institution. Religion in general, Mormonism in particular, is always a fluid function, that identities are never stable, that they're often changing from generation to generation. And I think it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that when we're so uh, so entrenched in a moment where it seems that everything is so clear-cut and partisan and divided that these same dividing lines that seem so entrenched today might not be the case in a generation. Mm. You're the author of The Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, and you're the editor of A Companion to American Religious History. You are interested in history with a lens really focused on religion, but you don't teach religion. I I teach religion sometimes, but I also teach American revolution. It's one of those where it's depending on what your department needs are. But I'm definitely interested in religion and Mormonism as a lens to understand religion. I have to tell you, Benjamin Park, talking to you makes me want to go back to school. (laughs) Well, that's my job. I I have to wake (laughs) up every morning and get a freshman interested in history, which is a challenge both daunting and exciting. It is indeed. Benjamin Park is an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. He's also the author of a new book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. That won the Mormon History Association's Best Book Prize. Links to his essay about Captain Maroney are available in this week's show notes. Coming up, we hear how some of our assumptions about the role of religion on January 6th may, well, be wrong. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Thank you. 
You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Religion can be a third rail when you're trying to teach it from a historical point of view. And making history interesting can be really hard when you're competing for attention. But stories, well, they capture the imagination. And these days, teachers have a lot more resources, interactive and multimedia tools that help curate content to bring history alive. It's one of the reasons why I was so intrigued to hear about the Uncivil Religion Project, a collaboration between the National Museum of American History and the University of Alabama's Religion Department. A year ago, as the events were unfolding, I reached out to Peter Manso. He's a religion scholar, author, and historian. We've had him on the show several times. He's also the Lilly Endowment Curator of American Religious History at the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian. On January 6th, 2021, I was asking if he had any comments, and he replied quickly and succinctly, it's too early. He told me that not long after January 6, 2021, he and colleagues stepped back and took a look at the amount of material that had a religious theme. And they decided that a more significant endeavor was required. With a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation, Dr. Jerome Kopolsky was hired as a consulting scholar. And then a partnership was formed with the University of Alabama's Department of Religion. And that's when Dr. Mike Altman, a professor of the University of Alabama's Religion Department, teamed up with Kapolsky to serve as a co-director of the collaboration. I spoke to him by phone in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I understand that this digital archive is born out of a desire to create a way for people to talk about and explore what happened, regardless of what their partisan or religious identity is. Yeah, I think the authors, we gave them kind of free reign to argue what they wanted to. The way it worked is we had gathered a bunch of different pieces of digital media, videos, images, um, even some FBI files that we, you know, there's way more we could have dug through. And we kind of just gave one thing to each person and said, like, how would you explain this or what's important about this image or this video to students, to a general audience, right? Like, use your expertise to kind of explain this to me like I'm five. Or someone who just doesn't get religion, right? I mean, right. you don't or, have yeah, to be five. Exactly. I'm thinking about so many people I know who I imagine including young people who be attending university who don't yeah. come from a home with, per se, the cultural and religious literacy, if I can use that word, of dominant traditions. I think that's exactly right. And I think what the authors did well is they really did a good job of both the religious literacy side, but then also the kind of analysis. I think the good example is there was a guy who showed up at various parts of the Capitol that day who was dressed as Moroni, who is this warrior from the, the Book of Mormon. The first time I saw this image of this guy was someone on Twitter saying, like, there's someone there dressed as a Roman centurion. And then someone else was saying, no, 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 that guy's, here's the video, he says he's Moroni. And Benjamin Park does this great thing where he explains, first of all, like, this guy's not a centurion, here's what he is, here's the story he's drawing on, like... And so that anyone who has no background in understanding Mormonism or the LDS Church can make sense of it. But then he gives this lovely history of how the church shifted in the late 20th century 
politically to become a stalwart part of the Republican coalition. I'm curious, how do you envision using this if you are the facilitator of a civic community or you're a social studies teacher in a school? How would you recommend somebody use it? I think I would encourage, whether it's a a social studies teacher or someone in any kind of community that wants to look at this, I would encourage whoever's sort of leading it to just spend some time exploring the site. I think of it more as a... um, a buffet or or a playground than a kind of curriculum. The way we built the site, and, and I'll take a little bit of credit here because I was the one who sort of designed and handled the site along with uh, the e-tech people in our College of Arts and Sciences and, and Jerry Wairinga, who runs the digital lab for us. But it was to make sure that every page leads to another one. So everything you read at the bottom is or in the middle of it is going to point you somewhere else. So it almost has this Alice in Wonderland feel where you'll be halfway through the article and you'll see on the sidebar like a link to another article or there's a media file embedded in the essay that takes you to another gallery. Glory, glory, hallelujah. I really want people to kind of explore it in that way and sort of go down the slide. And when you get out the slide, you see the monkey bar. So you jump on those and you realize that over there, there's a swing set. Do you feel the motion and the kind of like head on a swivel swirl of the event? sat through and watched hundreds of these short videos that people posted on Parler and Twitter and Facebook. It's just this kind of constant motion and something happening everywhere. And you see the same thing in different videos from different angles. What I would like to see people do in the classroom is sort of take one gallery or one one gallery or a couple galleries and let students or people in a group kind of like look through them and see what jumps out to them, right? Because we have 107 pieces of digital media from January 6th taken out of what could have been thousands. And so sort of letting people marinate in it, letting students maybe give them a gallery, give them some guidelines because it could be overwhelming and then see what questions it raises. I think this project raises a lot more questions than it answers. Like it will explain Moroni, but it'll also raise a bunch of questions about like, you know, what does it mean to have a flag that says Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president? Like we don't answer that question. We have some guesses. Some of the essays point to it. But I don't think we ever settle on like an explanation of how or why that happens. And so I hope folks will use it to come up with a lot of questions and then turn to those interpretive essays to try to begin to find some answers for stuff. Like there's a section on Christian nationalism. So if that jumps out to you, there's a section on the kind of religious pluralism that looks at how it wasn't just white evangelicals or white Protestants here. There's all sorts of other people involved in this event. And then like the last section is it's my personal favorite set of essays because it argues that there's stuff that doesn't look religious that has religion behind it. Mm. Um, So for example, Cody Musselman, who's a PhD from Yale, 
she wrote one of my favorite essays in the whole collection is, is hers about a video of these young men, young white men climbing the wall into the Capitol. And if you know the Capitol, there's a staircase not too far to the side, but they're going to climb the wall to get up in, right? And the title of the essay is You Don't Storm the Cop- Capitol with the Stairs. And she talks about how certain forms of Christian, muscular Christianity, and, and even also New Age, New Thought stuff has influenced and shaped physical culture in America and fitness culture in America, and how that's why the way these men are climbing the wall reflects this larger fitness culture that has roots in all sorts of different religious forms. It's that kind of like third level of like behind this stuff, there's still religion you might not see besides just like, you know, the giant Christian flag uh, in front. When you describe that, it sounds like peeling an onion. There are layers and layers of ways of looking at and thinking about what happened on January 6th, but also what continues. These movements that you're referencing, many of them have gained even more traction. Individuals who are clicking through uncivil religion, is there a way for them to get a sense of the post-January 6th narratives that emerged? It's been really challenging. It took us almost a year from gathering stuff you saw on Twitter with a hashtag to what we produced. So it took us a year to kind of just to make sense of the things that happened that day. Um, There's a couple of places where we start to see the kind of longer tail of this event. There's an essay from Sama Chowdhury about Jenna Ryan. She's now become uh, a social media famous, I think now in in prison for her uh, trespassing in the Capitol. That essay kind of follows her story. And it was one of the later ones that got finished because we wanted to see kind of how her story ended. Um, and so it goes from the video she made on the way into the Capitol. You guys, can you believe this? I'm not messing around. I will, when I come to sell your house, this is what I will do. I will f-ing sell your house. USA! 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 Here we are, in the name of Jesus. In the name of five all names. In the name of Jesus which is in itself really fascinating all the way through to a video she made a couple of days before she was going to go turn herself in to go to prison. Yes, I'm going to prison. It is true. I'm going to prison. Prison. Yeah. I think I'm going to do a lot of yoga in prison. Um, it's not going to be like, it's federal prison, so it's not going to be like the penitentiary. You know, I can't wait to get it over with. I want it over with so that I can move on with my life and start taking care of my business. Okay? Talk to you soon. Bye. Sama does a great job in that essay of kind of tracing the long arc of the events of that day have had and how to make sense of them and and the role of social media and all of that and of certain form of of Christianity and certain notions of, of womanhood and Christianity that are all going on in that. What I'm particularly interested in and hope we can dig into more is what's changed about the tellings of that day from various sides. How do we remember it? How that has changed? What I would think of as a kind of myth of January 6th and how those myths have changed over time. Mm. It doesn't tell us much about what actually happened that day, but it tells us a lot about what's happening now and where things might be headed. It's interesting, the casting of the individuals who stormed the Capitol and sought to interrupt and stop the uh, election process 
being hailed as patriots, being hailed as heroes, being hailed as martyrs. And on the other side, being described as individuals who pose an existential threat to democracy for what they represent to come in the future. Those two very, very distinct and different narratives are, I think, unfolding in, as you say, real time. How do you create space in your classroom for students who may hold those two very diametrically opposite interpretations of January 6th? How will you be creating a space for them to talk about it? Yeah, uh, we were just having this conversation in a faculty meeting this morning on Zoom. So, um, and All right. We were, so we it's were ta- fresh in your mind. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, colleagues and I were discussing. And I think everyone, um, I think, you know, teaching is such an art that everyone has to figure out what works for them. Um, but I had a colleague who was talking about using some of these essays in their Introduction to Religious Studies course. Um, and there were some faculty who were saying, like, oh, it'd be better to steer clear of these. You know, it's hard to do them in an intro course. Some of us who feel like, you know, I kind of feel like, the intro course is our biggest, widest audience. It's a general ed course. It counts for humanities credit. Like, this is when I get my chance to teach the engineer or something. So, like, I want to bring everything. I think if you start the conversation with what I would think of as, like, primary sources, primary texts, right, with just what do, you, what do we do with this image? What do we do with this video, right? Then um, an essay, you can Google the author and try to figure out what their ideology is. But a, a, an image, right, or a video you kind of have to sit with it, right? And you can make critiques of like who shot this or whatever. But that's to me is the way to start, right? Especially some of the galleries of like people. Those are really fascinating because you're hearing directly from the people. There's one of the Proud Boys marching uh, down to the Capitol and they stop right outside. I think it's the Garfield Memorial and they say a prayer and you can hear the prayer they say. To me, that's a great piece because like we don't have to talk about we're not going to critique some author's take on this, but we can start with why would you pray? What are they praying? What kind of prayer is this? What's happening with this? So that's an easy way in. And then once you've got students able to talk about it in that way, you can bring in essays and the essays can be one take, but everyone's gotten a sense that, okay, if I can have a take about what's happening here, if I can offer some analysis, what's happening here. And I think the the big key for teaching this stuff is always making sure I'm using new terms that redescribe what's happening. This is what my colleague Richard Newton said this morning. So I'm not going to use the terms that the people in the video are saying. I'm not going to use terms that you would hear on any cable news network. But I'm going to use the technical terms that we use in the study of religion, myth, ritual, whatever, right? And use those and give students tools for kind of redescribing what's happening or analyzing what's happening. That leaves space where it's, okay, we're doing something different, right? We have different language. We have different tools. We have different goals here. So I think that combination of going to kind of more primary sources like we have in the galleries and framing it with a larger vocabulary or analytical tools of religious studies in the classroom works really well. How do you deal with the very real context students come into the classroom with and the phenomena of confirmation bias? That's a really tough question. I think it's a combination of being honest and humble, honest about like, I don't understand why someone would do this or, or I don't, I have to work to understand, I guess, because it's my job to try to understand. I think the more that one can articulate both sides, even with the caveat of like, I don't think this is true or I think this is based on a misreading of history, but I can give you the internal logic, right? That opens up space where if you can do that, a student can say like, okay, that clearly this professor may not agree with me, but they at least are attempting uh, to be fair or to understand right i don't think that's where it stops like i think there's spaces to be um analytical and kind of like 
critical in that theoretical sense of trying to explain why people do what they do, right? Um, but I think it's a tough needle to thread. And I think most students that I've taught, they don't come to a class looking for a fight. They come to a class either not sure what they're looking for or looking to figure something out different about themselves and the world around them. I have yet to run into really militantly argumentative students who kind of want to make it a fight. I think most of them want to figure stuff out. Hmm. I think the key is making it very clear from the beginning that what we're doing in a religious studies classroom is different. We have different goals. We have different questions. We have different language. It's different than what they're doing on the internet or on Twitter. It's different than what they're doing in a, in a seminary or in any kind of religious organization. And it is not our job to decide what's good religion and bad religion. And the Uncivil Religion Project is not about, oh, look at this bad example of religion. And that comes from my commitment in the classroom. There's a famous essay by Jonathan Z. Smith, a great historian of religion, where he talks about the mass suicide at Jonestown. And he kind of says, like, we have to set aside for a moment the horribleness of this event to understand what happened so we can understand why people do these sorts of things. And the moral judgment has to be set aside briefly, right? And I, I don't think that's the case all the time, but I think if you can make it clear that, like, we're, we're not theologians and we're not ethicists, we're trying to explain human behavior first and foremost, and that we're doing something different, if you make a politically ideological argument in class, it's not going to work because it doesn't answer the questions that I'm asking or the questions that we're asking as a group. So that to me has been my greatest defense against it. Um, but it only takes me saying one stupid thing with somebody with their cell phone on for that to all fall apart, I guess. Hmm. What does success look like for you for this project? Wow. Um, at one point, success was just it was online and working. Um, right? <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think success looks like people are using it. I think a lot of university and college professors kind of always hope that maybe we could reach beyond our classrooms or our our journals and books to actual people or to high school students. And like, I hope maybe this will do that some, and I'll, I'll count that as a success. I would be very remiss if I didn't mention that three of our graduate students who were in my public humanities course this past semester did a lot of the work. I think for me, the fact that they learned so much in that process, the fact that the thing exists, the fact that we've got nationally known scholars of religion like Anthea Butler and Kristen Dumay and Phil Gorski alongside up and coming people who are just out of grad school or in their first job. To me, that all of that is what makes this a success already. Um, and I'm kind of feel like getting to do conversations like this with you and whatever else happens after this is just kind of... Um, Icing on the cake. I'm glad we can beat some icing on the cake. (laughs) (laughs) That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or using the podcatcher of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. We need it. It helps others find our show. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music. Our closing music is by Audio Binger. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. 
We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.